Welcome and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now let's join David Keane for his message. Tonight we're actually going to speed up a little bit because tonight we're going to go from Exodus through to Malachi uh, or Malachi, the Italian prophet as some people call him. Uh, who has, been, has, has anybody been here for the, the first three or four weeks of Theology 101? Because you have come in mid-conversation. Pastor Ben's been here. I don't know if he was listening though because he was doing a lot of talking. Um, so I do want to briefly recap because I know there are some people who maybe haven't been here for the whole thing. But what we're looking at uh, throughout this term is we're actually looking at what's called biblical theology. There are different types of theology. Pastor Ben has spoken at length about those. And I would encourage you, if you haven't heard one of the first few messages, get hold of a copy of it on our website because it really is an, an ongoing conversation. And I think the, the more of the messages you get to hear, the more you'll actually understand the full narrative of the Bible. You see, in our Western culture, and for many generations now, we, we've seen the Bible and we've learned the Bible as this a compilation of books, chapters and verses. But that's not actually how the Bible was written. The Bible is also a consistent and cogent narrative right from beginning to end. And, and in my view, one of the, the strongest arguments for the fact that this must be the Word of God is because you, you've got more than 40 authors over more than 2,000 years and I'm telling you, there's no 40 men on this earth that are that good to have a consistent, cogent, continual message throughout generations, throughout cultures, throughout various walks of life, throughout various belief systems. Because the belief system from, from the books of Moses through to the New Testament had changed drastically in many different ways. And, and the understanding of God had grown and changed drastically. And, and for that number of authors to get it that right and that consistent is just impossible. So it, it, in my view, it must be the word of God. But let's just have a quick recap uh, I know we've gone through Genesis, but I just want to quickly go back to the beginning for a moment because we need to understand what this consistent theme of Scripture is. There are two or three themes that run right throughout the, entire, uh, the entirety of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's only in understanding those themes and understanding those repeated cycles that the, uh, the people of God have gone through and the, and the covenants that God uh, com- enters into between first individuals and then families and then a nation and then the earth. Uh, and, and unless we understand those uh, broader themes of Scripture, we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. So let's just recap. In the beginning, God created all, everything from nothing. He spoke, it was so, it was good. And, and we know that the, seven day, the six days of creation and then on the seventh day he rested. And so he created mankind. Now, when I refer to man or mankind tonight, please understand I'm referring to male and female because God created man, male and female. He created them. Uh, I don't believe in this whole um, gender gender war that some some churches and some denominations have have entered into over the years. So if I refer to man or mankind, I'm I'm meaning all of us. We're all sons of God, but that's okay because us guys are the bride of Christ, so we've got to put up with that as well. So God creates mankind, male and female, and, and he commands uh, his creation to a blessing. He commands them to be fruitful and multiply. That's the purpose of God and that's the call of God. To, he says to rule over the earth and subdue it. Interestingly, everything on this earth was already in submission to God and man except for Satan. But man was told to rule over the earth, subdue it, to be a blessing, to be fruitful, to multiply. That was the call. Uh, God, God uh, told man to work, to work the earth, but work was actually a calling uh, after the fall, after the curse came in, 
Um, work, work did not come after that, but fruitless toil came after that. So what was meant to be fruitful toil became fruitless toil. Before that, God said to tend the garden. We were commanded to tend, we were commanded to nurture, we were commanded to love, and we were commanded to, to bless. And all the way through Scripture, this promise comes through in every covenant that God makes. So everything was good. And in that place of goodness, Eden is a picture of the kingdom of God. Creation was good. Male and female were there. Everything was in order and everyone was at rest. And God rested from creation. Not because God was tired. God didn't need a break. He hadn't worked a long week and thought, gee, I need a day off. God was creating a model for us, a model of rest, a model of fruitful work, of fruitfulness, of blessing, of increase, followed by rest. And that's the model that we see in in God's spoken word and in his covenants time after time right through scripture. And so, as we know, Genesis 3, things fell apart. Man and, and woman, instead of listening to God, instead of understanding who God was and understanding God's purpose for them, they listened to a different voice. Uh, and, and we all know the sin of Adam and Eve wasn't to eat the fruit. The sin was when they actually chose to believe a different truth about God and a different truth about themselves. When Satan said that uh, God doesn't want you to be like him, did God really say? God's just holding out on you. And it says that Eve listened to the serpent. She saw that the fruit was good for eating and for becoming wise. She believed what the serpent said. And so the following action to that was the, was the taking of the fruit. But it was actually listening to that, that voice about God and who God was and what God's purpose was for them. They were created in God's image. They were created to be like God, not to be God, but to be in his image. Satan said, if you do this, then you'll be like God. So he gives them a different pathway to what he says is to be like God. And if you follow the entire narrative of scripture, that same message comes in. It's, it's a, a case of mankind trying to be like God, trying to be God, trying to run our own universe. And what we see right through to today is, is just the consequence of that. The consequence, we, we've decided as a society for so long that we will be our own gods, that we've, we've decided to recreate everything, that we get to choose our own right and wrong. We even get to choose our gender now. We get to choose all sorts of things because we are acting like we are the gods of our own universe or the gods of our own lives. And that's just a consequence of what's happened from Genesis 3. So in that moment when everything was good, when everyone was at rest... And, and mankind walked away from God. God then had to banish mankind from the garden. And a misunderstanding that many people have had over the years is that that was a punishment. The banishing from the garden was not a punishment. It said that God knew that in their sinful state that these people, he didn't want them to live forever in that sinful state. So to protect them from being access, having access to the tree of life, he banished them from that and, and they were sent out of that kingdom of God. And from then all the way through, we see this, one of, the, one of the thematic narratives through scripture is this thing of God's kingdom, the promised land, the chosen land. And as Pastor Ben said last week, that's not just a physical location. It's not just about the nation of Israel that we know today. It was about a place. It was about a promise for mankind to come back into the presence of God and be at rest. And, and we see continual themes of that the land of, of blessing, the land of milk and honey, that place of rest right through to the New Testament where, where the writer to the Hebrews talks about that there is that Sabbath rest for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so God wants the people to be brought back into this place of promise. But as it stands from Genesis, they're outside that place of promise. And so all the way through we then see, and we've already talked about these next few, God creates a, a new covenant 
Uh, he creates, so there's the covenants that God creates with different people, or God enters into, I should say, with different people throughout scripture and then with a nation. But there's also a story of the, what I call the battle for the seed. You know, God says in that moment of sin that my seed, a, a child of this woman, will crush your head, Satan. And, and all through the Old Testament, we see this battle for that seed. And we see uh, different families, different lines where God restores that covenant through a new seed. So Adam and Eve, then Cain kills Abel, and then God gives them Seth, through which his seed is going to continue. And then down through, he makes a covenant with Abram. He says to Abram, we've already covered Noah last a couple of weeks ago, so I won't go there again, but he had a covenant with Noah to start again through Noah and his seed. He then enters this covenant with Abraham, and it extends to Abraham and all of his descendants. So God's now expanding that covenant to the entire family of Abraham. But through that, again, he has one line of Abraham through which that seed of promise, Hebrews tells us about, would come, and that was through Isaac, not Ishmael. That was through Esau, not Jacob. Paul tells us, uh, not, uh, uh, yeah, that's right, Jacob, not Esau, I should say. Uh, Paul tells us in, in Romans that God actually says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You know, I never understood that verse when I was growing up. It wasn't actually saying God hated Esau in the sense of, oh, it's, I don't want anything to do with him. He was referring to that, that covenant promise through the seed. The way God treated Jacob, he didn't deserve. He treated him with love that he didn't deserve. The way Esau was treated through that whole situation, he probably didn't deserve either. You know, sometimes we, we think, oh, well, Jacob must have been worthy of, that, of those promises and of, of the covenant that, that he entered into. But all through scripture, it's not about the people being worthy of God's covenant. It's about God in his sovereign state choosing to make a covenant with a person. And there's lots on that we won't get bogged down with today because we've got about 37 books to get through. <laughs> um, and so we see God is, is broadening that covenant. And, and again, with that covenant, though, you see when he speaks that covenant to uh, Abraham, and I think we've got a scripture there is, uh, uh, well, there's Genesis 6, which was Noah. He says to Noah, but I'll establish my covenant with you and you'll enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And then in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, which we've got on the screens there, he makes this new covenant with Abram. He says, Genesis from verse 1, chapter 12, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is one of the repeated themes of God's covenants. God enters a covenant with a people, not just so that they will be a special people, but so that they will be a blessing to all others. And if you read of all of his covenants throughout the Old Testament, the purpose of that covenant is for those people in that covenant relationship with God to then bless the others around them. And he says, I'll make your blessing to Abram and to his, his children. Remember, as Pastor Ben explained last week, this was at a time where Abram was somewhere between 75 and 100 and had no kids. And so his very name was actually a, almost a slap in the face. He was, he was an a almighty father who, who, was, who had no children and then became father of nations still before he had children because God changed his name in that encounter just before Sarah fell pregnant. So God actually, once again, spoke it and it was so. There's this theme of creation coming all the way through. What God speaks becomes so. 
And so in Genesis chapter 15, we won't read, but if you're writing down scriptures, just note down Genesis 15 verse 1 to 19, because that's when God actually establishes that covenant with Abraham. And, and he goes through a process whereby, uh, he, he, and it's quite weird unless you understand the, the culture at the time, but he cuts these five animals in half and they put the halves of the animals on either side and God comes through the middle of it with a, with, with a flaming torch. That was a way of actually sealing and binding covenants at that time of history. So God was actually entering into the picture and, and fulfilling the, the physical covenant making that two men would fulfill if they were making a binding covenant together. So that's uh, Genesis 15, fascinating stuff. And so God's seed continues through Abraham's lineage. But with Abraham, the promise then comes back to, for the first time, this place. He refers to the promised land. This land will, will be God's, uh, um, pardon me, God's blessing, God's uh, uh, gift, I guess, to Abraham and to his descendants. And, and as we've already said, that's not about where it, that, that could have been a physical place anywhere on earth. It doesn't really matter too much about the physical place. It, it was a place where the people could be in promise and in rest with God. And so we see the covenant starts becoming about a people and a promised land. Now at the time, or soon after that, what we find is that the people, Abraham's descendants, were taken out of that promised land. They were given it for a short time, but then they were taken out of it and they went to Egypt. Now throughout the 400 years in Egypt, they continued in being fruitful and multiplying, just like God said originally, and they they became many. But imagine a people whose only encounter with God at that time was this word to Abraham that would have been passed down through the generations. Oh, God spoke to Abraham. He promised us this land. But you're growing up 400 years. Just, just let's get a perspective for a minute. So Australia is just over 200 years old since, since uh, white... Uh, um, uh, yeah, anyway, there's different words they use for it now. But since it wasn't discovered, since it was settled by white people... Um, So just over 200 years. So if we're in that context of Israel and Egypt, we'd be just over halfway there. We'd still have about 170 years to go. Imagine being in the midst of that sort of period of time where you're enslaved, where generation after generation are born and die in slavery with this word to hang on to from God saying that we will be free and this will be our promised land. It would get a little bit disheartening, wouldn't it? Sometimes... When we read scripture, particularly the Old Testament, we, we sometimes don't think of the vast periods of time between some of these events. And, and sometimes we think, well, why doesn't God do something every day? Or why does God let this happen to me when, when I've had really bad circumstances for a week? <laughs> um, and, and yet, you know, in, the, in some of these times, it's not that the Israelites had done anything wrong. They weren't in Egypt because they were paying for their sin. This was part of God's plan. And all through scripture we're told reasons for it and we won't again go into those tonight but there was a purpose for 400 years worth of slavery in Egypt. And sometimes when we try and, when we try and model God in our own image and we can't understand some of these things we shake our head and start to think well that couldn't have been God. But there is much in the Old Testament that we really can't understand unless we see the bigger picture of God. And so he allowed his people to be subjugated for 400 years and then he raised up a deliverer. Now, for the first time, God's covenant now extended to an entire nation. He made a covenant with Moses. Throughout God's covenants, the other theme that runs through is that there is a progressive revelation. And, and we need to understand the progressive revelation of God to really understand the Old Testament. So at that time, 
God has revealed himself in certain ways and certain parts of who he is. So with Abraham, he was revealed as God the Father. Abraham is still referred to as Father Abraham. That that was a covenant of fatherhood. He now enters into a covenant of deliverance and freedom. And so through Moses, the deliverer, and, and we see so many of these pictures in all of these covenants of the ultimate covenant that we now refer to as the new covenant through Jesus. And one of the reasons we're racing through the Old Testament tonight is because next week we're going to see how Jesus fulfilled the covenants of God. Jesus fulfilled every one of these covenants which pointed to him. And the covenant with Moses, which is known as the Mosaic Covenant or the Mosaic Law. So remember the law throughout the books of Leviticus? It's sometimes, if you ever hear the term Mosaic Law, it's because it was given to Moses. But when God raised up Moses and when God called and spoke that word that his people would be free and that he would raise up a deliverer, the people were still in bondage. But again, he then started to make that so. And he was giving his people a picture of bondage and freedom, but there was a process in that freedom. And throughout that, the people ended up spending a whole generation in that process to freedom because they stuffed up so many times along the way. I can relate. (laughs) I'm sure many of us can. As God was working through these circumstances, he was creating a picture that... He was hoping that his people, way down the track, when Jesus came, would look back and see how Jesus was fulfilling these very things. How Jesus, What Jesus taught was actually a fulfilment of the law. What Jesus taught was a fulfilment of the Old Testament covenants. And, and looking through the Old Testament, through the lens of that ultimate freedom and deliverance and salvation through Jesus, that the people would surely understand, wow, this is the purpose of God. We, we, uh, we won't go too far ahead in the story, but we do know that they missed it, don't we? We know that by, by the time Jesus came, they, they, I guess, deviated so far from that message of God and from that covenant relationship place of rest with God and turned it instead into a man-made religion that they actually missed God when he came. But through this covenant with Moses, God was laying the foundation for the latest and greatest revelation. So let's just compare for a moment. Like if, 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 imagine you're a Jew and you're looking at the life of Jesus and you're looking at the life of Moses. And so as a baby, they were both, the, the king or the pharaoh at the time, uh, commanded that all the baby boys be killed. And, and Moses first was delivered from Pharaoh to become a deliverer. Jesus was delivered from Herod to come back and be a deliverer. All the way through, you see these, these themes that are running parallel. The people, when they come out of Egypt, they go through the Red Sea. God leads them through the sea, out of Egypt, out of deliverance. And as as the Egyptians come, the waters come back over and close over them. Again, at the end of that period of of, uh, wandering in the wilderness, they cross through the Jordan River. Again, that's crossing through that water into the place of promise. This is pictured by baptism in the New Testament, which we'll cover more in the coming weeks. But all these pictures are consistent throughout scripture, that it's this process of going through from death to life, from bondage to freedom, from death to life, from old to new. Did you ever wonder why Jesus got baptised? See, if baptism is a sign that I'm being set free or, or moving out from my life of sin, we know that Jesus wasn't a sinner. Jesus didn't need to get baptised for himself. He was fulfilling the picture that God had been painting since Genesis all through his life. Have you ever wondered why Jesus actually lived for 33 years? We know Jesus came to die and rise again, but he could have done that in three days. He could have come down on Friday, got on the cross, got back to heaven on Monday, and that would have fulfilled that. There's obviously a reason and a purpose for the 33 years that went before that. 
And we see in so many of those aspects a fulfilment of God's plan, of God's promises, of God's covenant, and, and of God's interaction with humans. And he restored one by one. He, he became, as we, as we read in, uh, in Paul's letters, the second Adam, he restored where Adam failed. He restored all of those areas where people had entered into covenants with God but failed to fill them and failed to complete them and fulfill them. Jesus became the fulfillment and, and the final covenant that is an everlasting covenant. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, he, the, the author goes back to Jesus as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't have time to unpack that tonight, but shameless plug, if you want to come on Monday night, we'll deal a whole lot more with that concept of Jesus as the everlasting priest. Because, you see, God wanted a nation of kings and priests. He wanted that relationship where there was the relationship where, where his people were priests on this earth, his people were, were kings in the sense of we were told to, to reign over the earth and we were told to nurture the world and we were told to, uh, to, to be fruitful and multiply. These are all blessings that come with royalty. We, we are children of the king, we are children of the creator. And so the consequence or the outworking of that is that he wants us to be in that place of rest with him a nation or nations, because it now includes the Gentiles, of kings and priests. God had always in, intended to include the Gentiles. From the very beginning, he refers to being a blessing among the nations, a light to the nations, a light that shines the way that they can then follow. And then Jesus became the light of the world that, that started that process that, that mankind had failed so miserably for about 4,000 years to fulfill beforehand. But again, God knew that beforehand. Genesis 3. He, he knew that it would go to that point of Jesus. And so the Old Testament is really just this, this journey or this account of mankind's frail and, and often misguided attempts to relate to their creator and, and attempts to live in covenant reality with him, but in our feeble, sinful state, we couldn't fulfill that. So he brings in the law. Now, the law... In that concept of progressive revelation was a real revelation of the, the perfect perfection and righteousness of God. It was revealing in many ways the nature of God. Sometimes when, when we've spoken of the law, like we're talking generally as Christians here, generally as the church, sometimes we, we focus on the do's and the don'ts. But, you know, so much of the law is actually filled with pictures of atonement and filled with pictures of redemption and filled with pictures in which right from the very beginning when there was sin... God's first response was to kill an animal. Uh, the blood of that animal covered over the sin. And he actually physically covered over Adam and Eve with the skins of that animal. And all the way through the law, God was establishing the picture of what Christ would end up fulfilling. And so if we look at the law, it's not just the Ten Commandments. There was 600 and... I don't remember the exact number. Do you remember, Pastor Ben? That's 613 laws or thereabouts? Something like that. The Ten Commandments were like headlines within that. But within that context... The people were, remember God was establishing a new nation. This was a new nation who had had 400 years of slavery. Now, any, any person or any people coming out of slavery, one, one of the most difficult things to navigate is freedom. And so God was establishing a very tight structure for a society that would operate under him. And one mistake that we can make as Christians is to think that we're still under the law. You see, Paul tells us in Romans 3, 19 to 20, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. 
Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. See, if we think that God tried to set this law in place, hoping the people would obey it, and when they didn't obey us, oh, gee whiz, we better go with plan B. Let's get Jesus down. God knew that the people couldn't keep the law. The law was there as the standard, the standard of perfection, and people couldn't keep that, or else Adam would have and Eve would have. And so God was establishing that standard of perfection, knowing that it wouldn't be kept, but knowing it was more about revealing who he was and revealing to his people that they needed a saviour. They had the picture of Moses who delivered them from bondage. They couldn't get themselves out of bondage and so they had a deliverer that God raised up pointing to the ultimate deliverer that God would raise up to set us free from spiritual bondage. See how the themes work? As I said at the beginning, no 40 men on this earth are good enough to get that right over so many thousands of years. So if there's not God behind it, then wow, these guys are brilliant. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, So the law was our guardian. This is Galatians three twenty four to 25, if you're writing it down. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You see, the law itself was actually based on, on faith. It was based on mercy and grace. Otherwise, a sinful priest couldn't go and offer a sacrifice even for himself. But through his grace, God allowed a sinful priest to offer a sacrifice that would not forgive sin, would cover over sin, Paul tells us. The term he uses is to hold in abeyance. Like in court, if if Ben and I went to court together and and the judge decided to hold the matter off for three months, that matter is held in abeyance. Neither of us are either guilty or innocent. That matter is in abeyance until it's dealt with three months down the track. In the same way, God decreed that the blood of goats and the blood of bulls would cover over sin until Jesus dealt with it again. This perfect picture and this perfectly consistent picture. We know that the people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and a whole generation ended up dying in the wilderness because they didn't get it, because they didn't follow the purposes of God. You know, one of the saddest pictures in all of the Old Testament for me is when God has led the people out, they've crossed through the the, uh, Red Sea and they're, in Mount, they're at Mount Sinai there and God calls Moses and Aaron, he calls them up to the mountain, he calls all the people to come around the mountain and he says to Moses that he will speak and the people will see his glory on that mountain. And we'll take up the story in Exodus 20 because this was one of the pivotal moments of the history of Israel. Uh, Exodus 20 and verse, where are we at? I think it's 18. Yeah, that's correct. Verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. You know, God's purpose was for the people to have a relationship with him, to hear his voice, to see his glory. But the people shied back and they said to Moses, no, 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 you speak to him for us. Don't let him speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And then the Lord says a number of things to to Moses. But interestingly, the first thing he talks about is not to make idols or altars. And yet you look two or three chapters later, Only very shortly afterwards in the story, the first thing they did, once they chose not to enter into relationship with God, but they wanted a mediator between them and God, the first thing they did was go and build a golden calf and worship a false god at a false altar. The very first step. And that was where 
the entire relationship with Israel, with that generation of Israel changed. God had made a covenant, but once again the people had failed. All the way through the Old Testament, God makes the covenant, the people fail. There's this cycle that goes on. There's a covenant made, the people fall from that covenant in whatever way. The people then end up in the consequence of that fall. God then brings a deliverer, the people are restored back to covenant with him. They, they end up either, either populous or, or wealthy or fat and happy and so they forget God and they fall from the covenant again and that whole cycle begins again and again and again and we see that cycle from the time that the Israelites failed and wandered in the desert for 40 years for another generation but then that next generation goes into the promised land and while Joshua was there things were okay but then we enter the time of the judges and the key verse throughout the judges and, and it's spoken time after time after time it says in that day Israel had no king every man did as he pleased Every judge, God raises up a deliverer for a time that people go, well, that book of Judges goes over something like 300 years, 400 years, like quite a vast period of time. A number of judges, a number of generations raises up and the people, but, but the cycle goes like this. It starts there and then it starts slowly cycling down like this. People are getting further and further degenerative away from God. By the end of it, the people are so far from God that the way... Uh, a man who decides he wants to do the right thing does that is he grabs a prostitute and cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends one of each 12 pieces to each of the 12 tribes of Israel saying come here because I want to tell you something like that's pretty far from God wouldn't you think that's probably even far from most episodes of CSI and yet that's that's this cycle throughout several generations of of Israelites in the promised land in the land of promise so even in that place that God designated as a place of rest It's not about the land. The people didn't discover or didn't enter into that place of covenant rest with God. So then the Israelites get to a point of saying, well, we want to be like the other nations around us. We want a king. Now, interestingly, it was always God's intention to get to that place of having a king. But the people wanted it their own way, their own um, in their own timing. And so God gives them what they asked for. And that is what, what I call a man's man, Saul. You know, one thing that fascinates me, that whole story of David and Goliath. You know, David, Goliath wasn't actually David's battle to fight. Now, Goliath, we know Goliath was a giant. But what many don't realise is that Saul was head and shoulders above any other nation, in, a man in the nation. In a nation of several million people, he was head and shoulders tall, bigger than anyone else. He was a giant himself. Any, the, the one man in Israel who was physically able to take on Goliath, or certainly the closest match there was, was Saul. And Saul kept running and hiding. And David, this little upstart 12 or 13-year-old kid, said, I'll do it. Who's this big giant think he is? So David had that heart, the heart of a warrior. But it came from the heart of a worshipper. And we we know through the story, we won't labour on David's story, but the covenant that God made with David became the greatest of all of the Old Testament covenants. And God had built covenant by covenant until he, he, he made this covenant. And, and listen to what he says of David. And I've gone all over my notes here, so I'll just find the, the appropriate one. 2 Samuel, Jane, uh, 7 and 1 to 16. This is a bit more of a, of a long passage of scripture, but it's important. So let's read it together. From verse 1, after the king, this is David, was settled in his palace... Actually, I should just, before we keep reading, I'll, I'll, I'll paint more of a picture. So David had become king. For most of his life, he had been fighting battles with all the nations around. Israel had never been the dominant nation to that point of the region. Under David, for the first time, Israel became the dominant nation. 
other nations came to Israel to give the king tribute. We see in Solomon's life, Solomon reaped the benefits of David's battles. David, every battle David had, God blessed him. He even had one battle that he was willing to go to for the Philistines against Israel just before Saul finally carked it. And, and even there, God was blessing him. Everything he did, God blessed him and God went before him. And so David, after a number of years as king, had won all these battles. Israel was, was reaping the benefits of the covenant blessing of God. And, it's, and, and so let's read from chapter 7. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, how's that for the heart of a king? This is a king who could have whatever he wants, whoever he wants. Um, he can receive tribute from whoever he wants. This is, at that point, the greatest king in the Near East. And his thoughts are, hang on, I'm, I'm living in such blessing, but God's ark is in this little tent. This is not right. This is not a right picture. Because God understood, uh, sorry, David understood the covenant. David understood the heart of God. And Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Interesting, because prophets not always actually heard from God or not always spoke what God had said. And you, you'll see, even with, with the prophets, we'll talk about in a moment, but sometimes the prophets would speak without hearing from God. And this is one of the few cases Nathan did that. He said, yeah, go ahead and do whatever you like, God's with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And, and God said this, go and tell my servant David... This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Yeah, that's a repeated theme through these covenants. Remember Abram, the, the people of Babel said, we want to make a name for ourselves. God said to Abraham, I'll make your name great. And all the way through, he says to David too, I'll make your name great, as great as any, any of the greatest names on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I'll also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will be never taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. Now this is incredible because in every other man-made religion, the follower would have to appease the God. 
They would have to build something for the God, do something for the God, um, uh, you know, pay some sort of penalty or some sort of sacrifice or some sort of effort to keep the God from somehow uh, reacting negatively to them. But God's saying to David, no, 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 you're not going to build me a house. I'll build you a house. He would build David a house forever. And you know, when Jesus came, who was he called the son of? He wasn't the son of Abraham. He wasn't the son of Moses. He was called the son of God and he was called the son of David. They're the two statements that he took on for himself and of himself because the greatest of the Old Testament covenants was that covenant that God made with the king who had a heart like God. And and David messed up. We all know the stories. David did all sorts of wrong things. And it wasn't just the Bathsheba incident either. He he was a terrible parent in many ways. He had all sorts of issues. In in his later years, he wasn't even too good a king in, in a whole lot of different ways. But he had a heart that was after God. And God said of him, that David has a heart after God. Who would, who would uh, love God to say that about you? You know that he had a heart or she had a heart after me. Um, and yet the blood on his hands meant that God didn't want him to build a house. See, God doesn't just want the acts of service from his followers. He actually wants to be the one to bring blessing. You see, blessing comes from the greater within the covenant. The greater one within the covenant, God wants to bless us so that we can be a blessing. He wants to give to us so that we can give to others. You know, it's this flow throughout scripture and and every single covenant repeats that same theme. He wants to shine his light on someone or some group so that that personal group can shine God's light to others. And ultimately, even in the New Testament, even... I'm going ahead of the story, sorry Jamie, but even in the New Testament when the Jews got this and the people were following Jesus and Jesus said, hey, now I want to go to the Gentiles, it still did their heads in. They still didn't get it. Even those who had Jesus and understood the message of Jesus, it was so hard for them to grasp, but, but hang on, the Gentiles, they need to do this and that and the other too because they need to be like us to get to God. What's the difference between the way the people in the Old Testament responded? You know, we, we people are, are very similar. We can do the same as Christians. Oh, yes, it's okay for someone to come to church, but they've got to, you know, let's tick all the boxes. Do this, dress like that, eat like this, talk like that, stop drinking wine, whatever. You know, you, you, you put your own uh, additions in there because we all tend to. But, you know, God wants to meet people where they're at. He wants us to shine his light to those. He wants us to be known for love. He wants us to be known for grace. He wants us to be known to reflect the attributes of God. And even even in that famous passage in, in 1 Corinthians 5 that so many churches have thrown out about, you know, expel the immoral brother, the one who was caught in adultery with his father's wife and all sorts of things, and Paul says, um, kick him out of the church and treat him as you would an unbeliever. But how does the rest of the New Testament tell us to treat unbelievers? It tells us to reach out to them and draw them in to God, to love them, to love your enemies. And so every covenant of God is outward looking and everything starts with God because God we're told sent his son into the world into a sinful world into a world that was filled with enemies to draw us to him and he wants us to draw others to him that's that's the sequence of scripture that's the sequence of relationship with God that is where the whole promise of the promised land and the and and that place of rest comes in because as we reach out to others and draw them to God we all enter together into this place of covenant rest That's the theme of the Old Testament. And God kept on trying and kept on putting that out there through his grace, through his mercy, and one by one, people and then families and then nations failed 
to fulfill the covenant. And so in his grace, he reset again. And we started again with another covenant. And as I said before, none of that took God by surprise. It wasn't God going to plan B and C and D and finally I'll send Jesus down. God knew this would happen. This was God preparing his people for his final solution, which was Jesus. For that solution which dealt once for all with all sin, with all selflessness, selfishness I should say, with all um, ungodliness. You know, history is a story of two kingdoms, and that's all it is. It's a story of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, which is the kingdom of Satan. And, and you read all through the Old Testament. And so through that period of the kings, uh, as we know, just very quickly walk you through the last couple of minutes of the Old Testament, which is about 20-odd books. But through that period of four or 500 years, Israel, bit by bit, they got it wrong. David conquered. Solomon was blessed and then turned from God. Jeroboam made some stupid decisions. The kingdom was split in two. There was the kingdom of Israel, which was the ten northern tribes, and the kingdom of Judah, the two southern tribes. And all through the kingdom of Israel, they never once again had a king that served God. In Judah, they had five what they referred to as revivals, through five different kings who brought the the nation back to God. And so Judah, that nation, survived for about 110 years longer than Israel. Israel was wiped out, and they were taken into exile never to return. Judah was also taken into exile to Babylon, but after 70 years, God brought back a remnant. And he called them Israel. And it was from that remnant that Jesus finally came. But the last 400 years of scripture, after four or 500 years of a kingdom and then a divided kingdom through which God spoke through his prophets, and prophets were those that heard from God and spoke his word to a people who were far from him, the people came back and then there was a period of silence for 400 years. Now, those that were here, I think last week or the week before, Pastor Ben talked about Genesis ending at this. It's almost like the, that, that um, uh, dissonance, you know, where God's promise is there, but the people are in Egypt. They're not in the place of promise with God. And rather than coming back, that recapitulation, the, the, the narrative ends with the people in slavery in Egypt. Same with the whole Old Testament. We, we end the period of the Old Testament with 400 years of silence from God. We refer to that as the intertestamental period. The Catholics have got a whole lot of books that tell their history, which are fascinating. Uh, we, we sometimes refer to them as the Apocrypha. Uh, and imagine then, after 400 years of silence, again, remember we talked about 400 years with Israel and Egypt, and, and within our context, we'd just be halfway through with the white history in Australia, so it's a long period of time. We have that same period of 400 years of silence generations born and die without ever hearing the voice of God and then into that silence comes the voice in the wilderness repent for the kingdom of God is near can you imagine what that would have done for people you imagine the hope maybe the cynicism maybe all sorts of emotion emotional responses when suddenly this voice from the wilderness shatters through the 400 years of silence and then we enter into what's called the new covenant we're going to stop there tonight because I think Pastor Jamie's going to cover a little, little bit more of that next Friday as we enter into New Testament theology. And as we go through the next few weeks of the New Testament, what you'll see is you'll see that all of these fulfillments in the New Testament actually fulfill what we've just gone through in the Old Testament. They fulfill the, the covenants of God. They fulfill the purposes of God. They fulfill that eternal redemptive plan of God that was brought to fruition in Jesus. So as you read the Old Testament... Read it with those broad pictures in mind and it will make a whole lot more sense. 
You know, we sometimes read through God telling him to kill the Canaanites and the kids and everybody and we think, is this the God that I worship? And they're legitimate responses. We can't understand it sometimes. But when we understand the overall and the overriding covenant relationship of God and, and how, how, um, how much sin breaks covenant and relationship with God and how much our own actions and actions of nations break that relationship with God, we understand the story a whole lot more. And we understand that God, even through all that time, was just waiting patiently and, and rising up, deliverer after deliverer, redeemer after redeemer, to point the way to that ultimate redeemer of Jesus. We hope you have been encouraged by this message. For more information, check out our website at desertlifechurch.org.